Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The Other Hand part of the Acast Creator Network. Hello, Chris. Uh, good to talk again. Welcome to the latest edition of The Other Hand. Um, this is probably our second last one of the year. Um, and I thought in my wisdom that it'd be nice to take a look at politics in 2024. What's that going to be like? And, you know, Ukraine, Gaza, US elections, Taiwan, European elections, local elections here in Ireland, Russian elections in March. So there's a lot of political stuff, a lot of elections. Can I interrupt you there? I was listening to, 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 I think it was Nick Robinson, one of the BBC here in the UK's leading news readers, journalists. And he was saying that 2024, as far as he can tell, and I have no idea how he measures these things, will be the most elections in global history. Yeah. Ever. As I say, I don't know how you measure that, but that's quite something. It starts in January with the Taiwanese election. And I don't know if you remember a TV program, which was very political, Jim, from about from your youth called The West Wing. I do indeed, yeah. There was an episode about China in it. Yeah. In which the Chinese were getting very upset. Now, this is a program that's over 20 years old. The Chinese were getting very upset about the Taiwanese practice launch of Patriot missiles. Of course, Patriots have very contemporary resonance in um, both uh, Ukraine and Israel, actually. They are wholly defensive weapons in that they are missiles designed to shoot down incoming missiles. And the the episode was about China getting ostensibly getting very upset about um, Taiwan having access to these defensive weapons, because even back then, people were assuming China wanted to invade Taiwan. And the episode turned on the simple fact that what China was really bothered about was the Americans selling Taiwan uh, ships rather than missiles. And the fact that Taiwan in this episode was about to have its first ever free election. 
That's over 20 years old, Jim. Wow. It's amazing. History doesn't uh, repeat itself, as is often said, but it always rhymes, doesn't it? It does. It does. Even in, even in fiction, fictional TV yeah. programs. Yeah, it does. Sorry, I, as always, I interrupted you. You, you interrupted me. Um, I, I want to talk about the Russian elections, but um, in the context of Irish politics, there is an interview with Mary Lou MacDonald in the Irish Times today. So I want to talk about that. And um, I'd like to start off, Chris, um, on your home patch with UK politics. Um, as our listeners will be well aware, you have a very dim view of the current UK administration. Um, the UK government at the beginning of this year pledged to have inflation. And this morning, UK inflation fell to 3.9%, down from 4.6%. The core rate fell from 5.7 to 5.1. And within that, core goods fell from 4.3 to 3.3. And services inflation fell from 6.6 to 6.3. So what that describes, a lot of statistics, but what it describes is an inflationary environment that is um, decelerating very, very rapidly. And the UK government has actually achieved its goal and I think it should be applauded for that, even by you. Not by me, mate. Not by me. First of all, the UK government doesn't have anything to do with inflation at all. If it, it could indirectly influence it if it had been tightening fiscal policy a lot to try and crush it. If it was up at 10%, you'd be blaming the government. No, no. In fairness, I always was a member of Team Transitory, and I felt that it was a combination of supply shocks arising out of the pandemic and energy price shocks arising out of the invasion of Ukraine, and that there wasn't much evidence of any more inflation than that. The extent to which inflation seeps into the, the economy via second and third round effects it can be something the government can influence, I grant you. But the most direct influencer of the inflation rate in the UK this year has been Vladimir Putin and what happened to the gas price last year. And the other direct influencer of UK inflation was the lab in Wuhan from which the COVID virus escaped from. Um, Those are the two things. Now, if the UK government's got anything to do with either of those things, I'd love to know, but I don't think it has. And as a fully paid up member of Team Transitory, I'm doing cartwheels here, metaphorically speaking, of course, to see that UK inflation, those numbers that you quoted there, Jim, were much better than expected. That's yeah. the point here. Yeah, it and is. UK asset markets, equities and bonds, they are doing cartwheels this morning, not just metaphorically. Um, as we speak, UK stocks are up a lot. UK bond prices are up a lot. Interest rate expectations are down and sterling. The all-important exchange rate is down. Everything is connected to everything else, Jim. And so um, whether that euphoria lasts or not, it's coming on the back of a big market rally and everything rally to do with falling inflation globally, falling interest rate expectations globally. But Rishi Sunak hasn't got anything to do with inflation, Jim. Come on, even you. I can see you're trying to suppress a smile there. Stop it. <laughs> I, I am, Chris. No, I saw Jeremy Hunt coming out this morning making that statement, so I was, I was kind of intrigued. But um, UK politics is what it is. Um, Rishi Shunak faces another by-election um, next year at some stage. Um, an MP called Peter Bone. Uh, you couldn't make it up, could you? You could Jim? not make it up, given the accusations against him. But Peter Bone, who represented the constituency of Wellingborough in Northamptonshire, um, he has lost his seat due to a recall peti- petition. 
And the background for this was that in October, he was suspended for six weeks um, to allow an inquiry take place. And this inquiry found he had subjected a staff member to bullying and sexual misconduct. Um, the recall petition was backed by 13.2% of eligible voters, 10% needed. So that means he's gone and a by-election will now be held. Um, he had a, <clears throat> excuse me, a majority of 18,540 votes in the general election. Um, and to put this in context, that is a smaller majority than the two seats in Tamworth and Mid-Bedfordshire that uh, the Labour Party took off the Tories in 2019. So it would appear that this seat is highly likely to fall to Labour. And I think this will just be another nail in the coffin of the Prime Minister. And um, I can already hear the right wing of the Tory party dancing with delight at the prospect of putting a, a, a joint ticket of Suella Braverman and Boris. Well, forward. it could well be those two. Who knows who's going to emerge from the uh, wet rot of the the, the, the ultra-right wing of the, the Tory party. Um, the problem is, Jim, as you know, is that the right is on the rise everywhere. Sometimes um, I think it's wrong to think of it in terms of old-fashioned right-wing versus left-wing politics. It's versions of extremism in, in various guises, and I think that these things sometimes are multidimensional rather than the simple left-right uh, spectrum, if, if you like, that we, we talk about politics. I wonder sometimes whether those labels apply anymore. And I and I, I mentioned that in the context of the discuss, discussion I think you're going to have with me about Mary Lou McDonald's interview in the Irish Times today. Uh, but whether you're an extremist of the left or the right, I, I think you end up in similar sorts of positions that beyond cliched horseshoe theory of politics that both of us have talked about these days. But the issue, the one issue that seems to drive everything, uh, both of on both sides of the extremist fence, is immigration. And uh, whether you're talking about in the United States the latest debacle over over budgetary policy, and in particular funding Ukraine, they decided to break for Christmas and will re we come back in the new year. This is the Senate. This is Congress in general to decide whether or not they're going to fund Ukraine next year and the way in which that's been linked to the border, the southern border in the United States, where um, that's the immigration there. Donald Trump has, has talked about um, American blood being diluted by immigrants or some such form of words. And I know we've got other things to say about Trump as well. But everywhere you look, whether it's in the UK, the United States, France, Germany, Ireland, immigration, is the issue. And um, just, just to put it out there, Jim, I find this extraordinary. I think I'm in probably in, in a minority of two people in the entire world that just, I, I can't get exercised about immigration one way or the other. I really can't. It, it you know, um, I know lots of immigrants. I'm Perhaps it's because I'm an immigrant myself. I am living in a country in which I was not born. I don't know, but it just is, it, I, I find it fascinating and in a car crash sort of way, why everybody in one way or another seems to get exercised about an issue that to me is just a non-issue. It's like getting exercised about the sun coming up in the morning. I don't think it's a non-issue, Chris. I actually get quite exercised about it because um, I think about the Ireland I grew up in in the 1970s. Um, it was just so monocultural. 99% were Roman Catholic, 
white Irish. There was no diversity whatsoever. And over the last 30, 40 years, uh, the cultural diversity that we've seen achieved in this country, um, I, I think has been incredibly positive. So culturally, I think it's been very positive. But I also think that the economic contribution and um, the, the, the contribution that immigrants are making to the Irish economy and Irish society. And you can say the same thing about the United Kingdom, the United States, wherever immigration um, happens, it has a positive effect. One of the problems, of course, is that um, in many, in some cases, at least, there is no attempt made for full integration. So if you are going to um, allow immigrants into your country, you need to make sure that the system uh, delivers full integration because that's what makes it stable and prosperous. So I welcome immigration. I yeah, I think those remarks are well made. I would share all of them. I think immigration is, you know, has unambiguously, in my view, net net positive effects, both economically and culturally on all of the societies so, so affected. But immigration is an emergent process. It's not something that policymakers have a button or a lever marked immigration to say, you know, increase it, decrease it. If we thought it was a, 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 such a great thing, then why not just have more of it would be my, my response. Well, Chris, the I, Irish government actually did that. Yeah, I, I know. Think, so does Canada. Yeah. Look yeah. at the, just the increase in the Canadian overall population this year in 2023. Extraordinary. Um, as a result of them welcoming immigration. And to a certain extent, you can, of course, do this. But mostly immigration... Uh, is 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 an what I call an emergent process that that arises from push and pull factors. There's the pu- pull factor of how attractive your society and culture and economy is. So if you, if you're a nice place to live with plenty of jobs, then you're going to have other things being equal, lots of Im- immigrants. And if you're a country that has a nasty government that uh, ha- creates no jobs and just oppresses its people, you're going to have lots of emigrants. Uh, Ireland has experienced both at least in terms of the economy being push and pull factors in my lifetime in the 1980s when I first lived in Ireland everybody was everybody was leaving the planes were full coming out of Ireland and empty going in and uh, that was a, so not, not not as the result of an oppressive government some might argue differently but more as uh, entirely as a consequence of there being no jobs so if you want to think about immigration or emigration or both you need to think about the drivers of it and rather than simply starting with the outcome it's like saying okay here we have a pandemic how do we stop the pandemic do we stop it by decree by just being horrible to the pandemic and by saying the pan you know these germs are not or do you actually go to the symptoms and causes that bother you Um, if you have a very successful economy and immigration for some strange reason bothers you then uh there are two things that you can do. You can stop the oppressive governments driving people out of their countries and you can have a less successful economy. Or, of course, you can just put up actual barriers and stop people from coming. But we all know that how unsuccessful that is. I mean, one of the reasons why we have all of these debates is that these top-down approaches to migration just don't work. People find a way of, of coming to your successful place and away from the unsuccessful places. So I think just get over it and um, welcome it uh, because it does bring net positive benefits, but uh, deal with the consequences rather than the symptoms. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I totally take your point, Chris, you know, about immigration and the political issue it is becoming and it's going to get a lot worse because if you look at global population projections out to 2050 or 2100 uh, from bodies like the United Nations, for example, you will see that most of the population growth is going to come from 
underdeveloped countries that will not be capable of absorbing that sort of population growth, leading to forced migration. Of course, climate change will also have a significant impact there. So migration is just going to become a bigger and bigger issue and, of course, will have massive political repercussions um, across the world. So I, I think we, we have to deal with that. Chris, moving on to the Ukraine situation, um, we see at the moment, and you've mentioned it there, $110 billion in aid from the United States and the European Union is tied up in political disputes at the moment. Um, it's clear, I think, from what I can gather, and you're much closer to this than I am, but um, Ukraine's situation is definitely deteriorating and there's a distinct possibility that Russia could now win this war outright. And if Ukraine falls, we need to think about the consequences of that. You know, what is the threat to NATO countries? What is the threat to non-NATO countries? You look at countries like Finland, Poland, Slovakia, Hungary, Romania, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, for example, um, will become massively exposed given what Putin wants to achieve. And of course, the challenge for NATO then would be the cost of building up defences on its borders with Russia would far outweigh any possible costs that would be necessary to try and enable Ukraine to win this war. So I, I think the bottom line is um, the world needs to wake up and ensure that you, Russia cannot win this war. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Yeah, there's, there's an awful lot going on there, Jim. And the articles uh, that start with, Can Russia Win?, are appearing daily now. There's one on Bloomberg, for example, this morning, uh, a new piece asking that question, what that might mean, what that might look like. And we know that further uh, aid for uh, Ukraine is stalled in Congress, as we have both mentioned, uh, at least until the new year. The Pentagon itself has said that the, uh, the US cash for Ukraine will run out before Congress comes back. So I think that's pretty serious. And European aid for Ukraine has been stalled by Viktor Orban of Hungary. I'd have some very strong views about that particular issue. I think Hungary should be kicked out of the EU now. Yeah, totally agree. And uh, it doesn't belong in the EU. It doesn't share the, the, the values that other members of the EU have as, as core, to their, core to their existence. And I think uh, having a um, supporter 
or really brother of Putin, political brother of Putin, at the heart of the EU's policies at the moment Chris, is, ridic- is ridiculous. Can I just interrupt you there? About five years ago, I spent a few weeks working in Hungary, south of Budapest, and there was a lady driving me around, um, organized by the company I was working for, and uh, she was from Budapest, so she would regard herself as a, you know, sort of a liberal urbanite. And um, the stories she was telling me back then about Orban, what he was doing, where he was getting his support from, um, did scare me. And, you know, everything I learned at that stage really has come to pass. So I, I would agree with you. The, the values that Orban, Orban excuse me, um, espouses are definitely not EU values. And as such, you'd have to ask the question, how can Hungary possibly remain a member of the European Union? I'd also have similar questions, possibly not asked quite so loudly or impolitely about Austria. Uh, there, if you go to Vienna these days, one of the things that you will notice are a lot of Russian speakers sitting around drinking coffee and drinking beer and eating in fine restaurants. And you wonder about Austria's connections to to Vladimir Putin. They might all be Austrian citizens for all I know, but they, they do speak a lot of Russian there, which is very, always very, very interesting. But Ukraine, the war has stalled. The famous offensive, summer offensive, spring offensive actually, going back a few months now, didn't work. And we have a World War One style battlefield where uh, essentially uh, artillery shells are lobbed uh, at each side, lobs artillery shells at each other. Uh, that's the the World War One comparison. What is new, of course, is drone warfare. And we, in in different discussions, we've often asked ourselves, Jim, if you're advising a young person today, what job looks secure for the future? I would say drone operator, um, become one of those, and you'll have a job for life. Is is one of the new things that's emerged from 2023, because I do think that we are potentially as a result of Russia, if Russia wins in Ukraine, heading for another European war. And um, that means that uh, a lot of young people should be measuring themselves up for uniforms at the moment. And if you want a job, A, for life, and B, that you might stay alive during that war, being a drone operator could well be the, the one to go for because you can be safe behind lines, a bit like those corpulent generals um, of the First World War, safe behind lines. Uh, the... Putin has been very clear in the last few days to try and say, I am not going to attack a NATO country. And the reason why he says that is that he is appealing particularly to Republicans in Washington, D.C., but to anyone else who thinks that abandoning Ukraine now is a good idea. What he's trying to do is foster the notion that if we just left Ukraine to the Russians, that would be it. Our gas prices would fall. We wouldn't have to be shoveling so much money and arms and, and whatever to to Ukraine. Let it let Putin have it, and we can go back to the way we were before. After all, Ukraine was a Russian country once upon a time, wasn't it? Is the sort of a historical nonsense that people spout. I couldn't disagree more with that line of thinking, and I think, and I really, really do feel disappointed that so many people are falling for Putin's rhetoric because he will go for the Baltics. He will go for Estonia, Lithuania, and Latvia. That is one real pain in his backside that they have, are no longer within Russia's orbit. Um, but I think it'll be worse than that. Once he's gone for those three, I think that he very much has Poland in his sights. If you understand European history at all and the way in which 
bits of eastern Ukraine used to be Polish and vice versa and all the rest of it and the way in which these, these lands have changed hands so many times in history. And just listen and read what Putin has said so many times, apart from this most recent speech. And you know that he is trying to rebuild the Soviet Union. He is trying to rebuild a Russian empire. And so if I was Polish, for example, right now, I'd be very nervous about the years ahead. So don't believe a word that man says ever is a very strong message. And the idea that we should just leave Ukraine to him is both immoral and I think from a narrow self-interested perspective, stupid. Um, and if we do leave Ukraine to the Russians, then I do think we should be measuring our children up for their uniforms. So there. Okay, sobering stuff for politics in 2024. The Gaza situation is ongoing. Um, it, it was interesting, the initial approach adopted by Leo Varadkar, which got a lot of criticism, um, is starting to become a little bit more the norm at this juncture. Um, you know, I, I think, obviously, what happened on October 7th was horrific with Hamas, uh, but the Israeli response at this stage is going beyond the point of um, being acceptable. I mean, it's horrific stuff. And you just really wonder at this stage, how will you ever get any semblance of stability in that part of the world? Um, that obviously is going to be another dominant theme in global politics in 2024, unfortunately. Chris, the US presidential election in November is really starting to look interesting. The Supreme Court of Colorado cited the 14th Amendment to the Constitution last night and basically ruled that Trump cannot appear on the primary ballot in the Colorado presidential election. Um, obviously, the Trump people will appeal this to the US Supreme Court, but I think the interesting point here really will be, will other states follow suit at this stage? Yeah, I think other states will wait for that Supreme Court ruling. And I would have thought, given that the Supreme Court is stuffed with Trump nominees these days, and according to various uh, reports coming out of the United States, at least one, if not more of those judges are essentially corrupt. They've been bought. There have been all sorts of corruption money stories surrounding some of these Supreme Court justices. So I would have few doubts that they will find in Trump's favor. But if they wouldn't, to bizarrely and unexpectedly, at least regarding my forecast, uh, find that he is not able to stand in Colorado, that won't have a massive implication in and of itself, because I think it's only something like 10 electoral votes in, in that weird system that they have, because very few people actually historically have lived in Colorado. Um, it is a, a, the Rocky Mountain state, or one of them anyway, um, very mountainous, or at least part of it is. Uh, uh, it will be, as you say, if other states then amount a legal challenge to try to keep uh, Trump off the ticket. And that, that's where it will get really, really interesting. But it's, it's over to the Supreme Court now. To, Supreme Court now. And um, as I say, I expect one particular outcome, but it will be interesting to see what they do. OK, I mean, if, if Trump makes it to the line in November, uh, clearly his chances of victory based on what we know at the moment. And I know... Um, a year is a long, long time in politics. Uh, a week is a long time, actually. But um, if he makes it to the line, there's a distinct chance he could be the next president. And the implications of that for global trade, for nationalism, for that the, the sort of fill up this would give other right wing authoritarian leaders around the world 
would be significant, the impact it would have on the global political order once again. Um, you know, his attitude towards Russia, his attitude towards China, um, all of this stuff will be fascinating to watch. And unfortunately, um, none of it looks remotely positive. So personally, um, my dearest wish in 2024 is that, number one, Trump doesn't make the starting grid, but that if he does, that he's roundly defeated. But I would worry about the ability of Biden to do that, given the other problems Biden has at the moment. But uh, it'll be a big one to watch. Uh, we have elections in January in Taiwan, which uh, you mentioned a little bit earlier on. Uh, that will obviously have huge implications for the Russian, sorry, the Chinese relationship with Taiwan. We have European elections in uh, Europe and the European Union in June. And I think the performance of the far right parties will be the thing to watch there more than anything else. Um, I, I'm skipping through this pretty quickly, Chris, because I, I, wa I want to get to the Irish situation. OK, if you don't mind, uh, we have a presidential election in Russia, 15th to the 17th of March. And um, if no candidate received more than half the vote at that stage, there will be a second round three weeks later on the um, 7th of April. And um, one assumes Putin will um, narrowly get over the line there. Yeah, I think it could well be a 51-49 outcome. But uh, I, I expect Putin probably will win that election, don't you, Jim? Yeah, I certainly do, yeah. What is clear is that he has set up the... the, the political structure, constitutional, I, I use that term advisedly in Russia, that he essentially wants to die in office in, a long time in the future. He is now president for life. Yeah. And that's something that everybody needs to get used to. Yeah. As is Xi Jinping in, in China. Indeed, indeed. Um, but anyway, moving back home here to Ireland, um, an important year for elections. We have local elections, we have European elections. A general election has to be held by March 2025. Um, what I'm hearing is that Leo Varadkar would like to go early in 2024. Fianna Fáil would like to push it out as far as possible. Uh, as you know, politics is the art of compromise, so <laughs> the election could happen anytime in the next 15 months. But um, the, the really interesting thing from the elections we're going to see will be the stance of Sinn Féin and the policy the policy platform of Sinn Féin as it starts to emerge. Uh, there is an interview in the Irish Times this morning um, with Mary Lou MacDonald, and I'll just take you through the key points of that interview because I think uh, it's interesting, albeit not very revealing. Um, she said that lower property prices will be the goal of Sinn Féin and she said I quote get prices as low as we feasibly can and when questioned on that she said she'd like to see average house prices in Dublin fall from 430,000 at the moment to 300,000 that's a 30% decline. That's really For interesting Jim because I think that's the first time I've ever seen and I'll, I'll check this I'll, I'll go and ask one of the artificial intelligence systems this question uh, has a government ever targeted house prices in global economic history? And I suspect the answer is no, it hasn't, because most governments, despite the fact that most governments are completely daft, they're not so daft as to realise that to have a house price as your key economic policy target is utterly ludicrous. 
Um, if you achieve it, it will only be by happenstance, by chance, by luck. Um, it's something that you shouldn't really set up as a target. Um, economic policy is not designed to target house prices. The second thing I would say about that, the fall in house prices from 400 and something to 300 that Mary Lou um, would like to achieve can be achieved in a number of ways. If you put interest rates up to 100%, you'd, you'd get that. You'd get actually lower house prices than 300,000. If you uh, doubled, double, and it's interesting that it's Dublin, isn't it? I wonder why she's focusing on Dublin and not the country at large. Anyway, if you got Dublin... No, 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 sorry, in fairness, she did say uh, that obviously there'd be different proportional... Yeah. Um, but if you doubled Dublin's housing stock, you'd probably get house prices down to 300,000. Yeah, you could do it that way. Um, the other way of doing it, which I think is probably um, the most likely of all the outcomes, is that the way in which you get 300,000... Uh, euro average house prices in Dublin is if you crush the economy. Ah, yeah, Fianna Fáil achieved that in 2007. Yeah, if you crush the economy, you'll, you'll get house prices. And so there are various ways that you can do this. Um, the most likely outcome is that you won't do it at all. You won't get even close to 300,000. But I think the, the easiest way for her to do it would be to actually crush the economy. And um, she, of course, would say that is not her objective, but um, it may well be the outcome. And if I may intervene there and say that in relation to the economy, she said that she wants an economy that is robust, diverse, that generates prosperity. And then we want to share that prosperity in a fair and equal fashion. OK. And of course, the interviewer doesn't ask her, how are you going to do that? What does it mean? Um, so I, I, I found the whole interview left me absolutely cold in terms of learning anything about what Sinn Féin might do in government. She did say Sinn Féin would be a government for change, but yes, she talks about not doing very much with the economic model. Um, she outlines her key objectives, if in government, as Taoiseach would be housing, health, energy independence, climate change, preparation for reunification, and she thinks we're in a decade when um, a referendum will happen on reunification. And she talks about a step change in the way the state does its business, how the public administration functions. And she cites the lack of pace and the lack of ambition in the way the public administration functions. So that's pretty much the interview. As I say, what really left me cold and annoyed about the whole interview was that she wasn't asked the questions about how are you going to get house prices down? What do you mean by sharing um, economic growth in a fair and equal fashion? Um, she, she must realise that according to bodies like the OECD and the IMF, Ireland does have an incredibly progressive income tax system, for example, and also has a pretty redistributive social welfare system yeah that's the oh. equivalent of saying um in non-economic speak ireland has the most sharing economy one of the most sharing economies in the world already so it's interesting that she wants to do, do even more of that as you say jim the how is very important i would also add that once you start taking economic growth as a given which is i think the tacit assumption that she's making there is that don't forget don't forget, she's not saying how she's going to achieve economic growth. She's talking about how she's going to share the spoils of economic growth more fairly and even more than we do at the moment. 
um, you end up having goals, having objectives of policy that are uh, sometimes at odds with economic growth. I'm thinking of my native Wales here. Wales has had a single party state since devolution in 1999. It's called the Labour Party. One of the reasons why me as a historic Labour voter really does worry about about that party in Wales in particular, but also, also in general. And the Welsh Labour Party, the Welsh Labour government in Wales has had all sorts of objectives in mind for the 25 years or so that it's been in power, but none of them have had the words economic or growth in their objectives. The two things that they've actually prioritised have been uh, the Welsh language and uh, cars. Uh, they like one, but they don't like the other. And so the Welsh language is promoted. A huge resources are devoted to the Welsh language, and they are trying to abolish driving in Wales through a various manner of means, reducing speed limits to 20 miles an hour and not building or maintaining any roads. And they've been quite successful in that regard. And the Welsh economy has suffered enormously as a result of mostly benign neglect. It's not that they're deliberately targeting a weaker economy, but that's what they've got. And the things that tend to flow from prosperity, from economic growth, things like a better education out, set of outcomes, better health outcomes, guess what? Wales is going backwards on education, going backwards on the NHS, on healthcare, as a result of all of this neglect. And it's quite disgraceful, actually. And it, But it, it is an illustration that if you have a set of objectives, there's nothing wrong with targeting the language, for example. I'm a huge fan of the Welsh language, just as I, when I lived in Ireland, I was really quite fond of, of, of the Irish language. Didn't learn enough of it, but there we are. Um, it's, a, it's really what other objectives you are going to have and what are your priorities. If your priority isn't economic growth or if it isn't one of your priorities, guess what, Jim? You're not going to have it. And you're not going to have the growth that you want to share and all those other things that she wants to do. So you're quite right to ask, how are you going to do all these things and how are you going to keep growth going? Because uh, that, there's a lot of potential conflicts within that list of objectives and we've absolutely no idea how she's going to do it. So I think that it's absolute nonsense. It's a rubbish manifesto that is that ha is incoherent, is populist, um, and verges on extreme. And I know lots of people will disagree with that, but th those are my, my views. And I also know that lots of people are going to fall for it, as they are falling for similar promises made by similar parties in many other countries around the world. Indeed. Listen, Chris, um, we'll wrap it there. Uh, I just, I guess... Uh, it's worth reiterating that this podcast is very much about politics in 2024. And the question might be asked, what the hell do we know about politics in 2024? But I, I think the one thing we have both learned over the years is just how political actions can have huge economic repercussions. So that is, I think, the context. Um, Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? 
Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Next podcast before Christmas, I think we'll look at the economic variables in 2024, what that might look like. So I look forward to talking to you on that. Uh, see ya. Likewise, Jim. Cheers. <laughs>